Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 75. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Liam Halligan. Liam has been writing his multiple award-winning Economic Agenda weekly column for the Sunday Telegraph since 2003. He has also worked for The Economist, The Financial Times, CNN and Channel 4 News and is a presenter on Channel 4 Dispatches. He holds an economics degree from the universities of Warwick and Oxford. Liam has a new book called Home Truths, the UK's chronic housing shortage, how it happened, why it matters and the way to solve it and is published on the 19th of November. Welcome to the show, Liam. Nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's great to have you on. So how did you get into economics? Uh, I got into economics because I took an A-level in economics, um, uh, which really got me started on, on the subject. But I'd always had an interest in the economy. I, I grew up in a in a household in, in London, a Irish Catholic household, where my father ran a tiny little building business, just a guy in a couple of vans. And so... Um, the mood of the house was very much linked to the state of the economy. <laughs> right. Um, construction is 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 famously a, a bellwether of economics. Um, the builders are always the first to know when the downturn's coming, and the first to know when the green shoots are about to emerge. So, growing up in the early eighties, the mid eighties, a time of real economic turmoil, a lot of human misery. I thought there must be a better way. How did you find the economic course? Did you think it reflected reality or did you have to develop your own kind of style of economics to make sense of the economy? Well, even as early as my lower sixth A-level class, the teacher um, would partly tongue-in-cheek limit me to 20 questions in each 40-minute period. (laughs) Saying, but what about, but what about, but what about? Um, And then I did a... so I. But I did enjoy the subject at school. Um, I did maths and English A-level as well, so I did a very broad range. That's quite an unorthodox unorthodox mix, isn't it? It is, because I was good at writing, but I like maths as well. And I figured if if you're good enough at maths to do a maths A-level, you should do a maths A-level, because it proves a certain type of analytical mind. Uh, Partly because I was so mathematically oriented, I went to Warwick to do my undergrad, which was very much a very mathematical economics course at the time. Um, Still is, though the department has branched out a lot since then. I'm still closely connected to the department. And then I did an MPhil uh, at Oxford, which is also very, very mathematical. But all the time I was um, writing about economics in a more discursive way. Uh, I did enjoy particularly the applied side of postgraduate economics using data um, based in theory rather than just pure theory, though I did do quite a lot of theoretical work too. Um, and then after Oxford, I had a tremendous opportunity to go to um, post-communist Russia, working with economists like Richard Layard of the LSE, Jeff Sachs, then of Harvard and and many others, um, and that's where I really developed a, an interest in economic policy making, the interaction with politics, um, and also uh, basically turned into um, an economist who tried to project 
ideas and 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 complex um, issues to a broader audience through newspapers and then and then broadcasting. You say post-communist to describe Russia. What would be, in your view, the the best way uh, to describe the the Russian economy today? Is capitalist seems like it might be just a little stretch too far, perhaps. Well, it is, of course. It's a kind of it's a kind of state-heavy capitalism, though the state isn't as involved as um, uh, most Western economists would instantly think. So, for instance, in the oil and gas industry. Uh, while the state is involved, obviously it's a lot less involved than in some other major energy economies like the Saudis or the Norwegians, for instance. Um, you have lots of private interests across the oil and gas complex, not least BP owning a fifth of Rosneft, which is the biggest oil company. Um, uh, and it is at best a managed democracy. Um, and that's, you know, that's been quite generous. Um but of course, within our lifetimes, within our adult lifetimes, Tim, it was a totalitarian dictatorship. Mm. So um, when I go to Russia, I mean, those of us who were knocking around in Russia in the early 90s and the mid 90s and saw how close we came to a complete meltdown to uh, an ongoing age of coup and counter coup, um, you know, when you're carving up the biggest resource endowment on the earth, um, there's likely to be a grubby fusion of money and politics and there was and there is um as there was and is in many early post-capitalist society uh, early capitalist societies i mean one of sorry to interrupt but one of the reasons i i sort of single list this out is because it, 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 in a sense it's the sort of the lingering fear suspicion that i think both paul and i have had for some time that we don't have proper capitalism in the west anymore so the, the whole snow globe of sort of geopolitics and economics is, is, is really being thrown about at the moment. I, I completely agree. I, I mean, I've, I've been writing a lot lately in my Telegraph column and elsewhere um, and talking to lots of people in government um, and indeed the opposition um, uh, about the, the fact that capitalism has ceased to work and you can't just assume it will work. I mean, I'm broadly a a free market person and and you are Tim and I suspect a lot of listeners to this listeners to this podcast are as well but you know that being pro free market doesn't always mean being pro big business sometimes it means precisely the opposite sometimes you have to make sure that the market is operating and sometimes that means intervening to make sure it's operating uh, because sometimes some sectors markets left to themselves can produce oligopolistic monopolistic um, cronyist, even corrupt outcomes. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing across many, many sectors across the Western world um, in our own economy, from you know banking to audit to house building to, uh, to utilities. An awful lot of sectors are performing in a way which is extremely good for a small number of shareholders and an even smaller number of executives. But the out, but in terms of consumers, the outcomes are, are low trust, high price, bad service. Um, I think our political media class have become far too entwined, uh, far too cosy with one another. Um, I think we're on the cusp of a sort of new gilded age, to use Mark Twain's phrase. And it, and it wasn't a positive phrase, of course. It was a, mm. a satire and a searing um, critique of of the US at the end of the 19th century when 
um, uh, inequality was rising fast, certainly wealth inequality, uh, and the, in, the legitimate, legitimacy and the consent of the entire system was being broadly questioned. I wouldn't want to overstate this. Of, of course, society now is much more um, fair uh, and producing much better outcomes than it was then. But we did go into a strong period of antitrust in early uh, 20th century America. And I'd say we need, at the very least, uh, a recognition among some politicians and particularly free market politicians that uh, rather than more regulation, we need smart regulation that cuts in and is effective in order to make capitalism work uh, in a way that it will continue to garner uh, a broad swathe of support among the population, because if it doesn't, then um, other people can come in with simplistic um, uh, answers, with counterproductive, heavily interventionist policies uh, that will make things much worse. And there's a lot going on. You know, we're talking in the run-up to the uh, December 2019 election, and and obviously there are many many headline issues. But I think bubbling up under the surface is this broader issue of what kind of capitalism do we want? If, it, if you'd had your way, if you'd been in charge of monetary policy or, or, or bank regulation or all these different sort of godlike things back in 2007, 2008, would you have, would you have uh, bailed out the banks the way they were bailed out? Well, the first thing I'd have done, um, and again, this is a common theme of my writing, um, is I would have... Um, in the US, I would have reversed the repeal of Glass-Steagall. I think the fact that Glass-Steagall was removed, um, Glass-Steagall, of course, being the firewall between investment and commercial slash retail banking, that was removed in 1997. I'm not saying it's the only reason for the 2008 crisis, but I do think um, it was a major reason yes. of the 2008 crisis. From 97, we've we, you know we've had lurched from um crisis to crisis it seems um and in the uk we had a kind of informal glass steagall that was taken away um during the 80s by nigel lawson who since said what he did then that aspect of big bang was a major mistake so i i i, I would have wanted and i still want and i think it's absolutely essential um that investment and commercial banks are completely separate not just ring fenced ring fencing doesn't work. Um, it's like a string vest. Um, in so that investment banking, which we need, can happen, but without the prop of taxpayer-backed deposits uh, being at stake, um, which of course causes enormous moral hazard. And then retail slash uh, conventional commercial banking can happen um, with the necessary support of taxpayer-backed deposits. Um, so you make investment banking um, more interesting because it's genuinely competitive uh, and real money is at stake um, uh, by the practitioners involved, often their money, um, rather than what will eventually be the state's money, the state's losses. Uh, and then um, retail commercial banking becomes a very boring utility regulated in a clear way with low margins. So I would have. The Vickers report for me was um, it completely inadequate, and even the inadequate measures have been barely implemented. And even now, the banking sector 
thinking that we've all forgotten what happened is lobbying for even those weak reforms to be watered down further. So that's the main thing. Of course, you needed to um, take very, very significant emergency measures in 2008, but I do think um, more of the losses should have been fessed up. I do think um, QE went from being a necessary emergency measure to what it is now, uh, a, a, a lifestyle choice. QE started out in this country as a £50 billion exercise. It was now £375 billion plus. It started in the US as a $600 billion enterprise. It's now uh, in the trillions, three to four trillion, with the QE, of course, having just cranked up um, in all but name uh, QE4. Never since the financial crisis have we had a moment when um, some big central bank somewhere hasn't been doing QE, uh, at least one, whether in the US, the ECB, Bank of Japan, China, the UK. And this is why markets have been completely warped um, with the uh, you know, Dow Jones at successive all-time highs, with um, the price of bonds completely bloated, so their yields are very, very low, um, with asset prices across the economy, property uh, um, being pumped up. Um, and so what we have, Tim, is a situation where the very people who caused the crisis, often fraud, corruption, uh, illegality. Um, these weren't just honest mistakes. Um, almost none of them have gone to prison, and a lot of them have got much, much wealthier as a result of the pain they've inflicted on others uh, and the subsequent cure, and all that tears at the social fabric. You know, financial markets these days, they don't hold governments to account. Uh, they take governments hostage. Uh, and people can see that this is happening. Ordinary people, um, you've got a situation where uh, billions, trillions of dollars worth of assets, financial instruments across the world, including the bonds that go into pensions and insurance policies and all the rest of it, are now yielding negative uh, guaranteed yields, uh, which all of that leads to huge malinvestment. Um, that's the, a big cause of the productivity crisis, I think, the fact that so much capital is misallocated. Um, and so you have to get to a situation where we're approaching normality and we were starting to at least grasp for normality as Janet Yellen was raising interest rates, trying to get US interest rates at least positive in real terms. But the Bank of England could then follow it. There were signs of that. Uh, maybe even the ECB at some stage could uh, steer its way out of the crisis that it's in. But we've now lurched back. Trump is knocking Jerome Powell over the head, uh, literally calling him a bonehead on Twitter, which I think is just an astonishing state of affairs. Uh, and there seems to be like a downward Dutch auction now where um, certainly in the run-up to the US election, it's all about which government can print the most money, which government can yank interest rates even lower. We've, economic orthodoxy has been turned on its head. We're now talking about, oh, it doesn't matter. You can carry on as long as you spend the money on infrastructure. It will all be fine. Well, if this stuff worked, Zimbabwe would be in the G7. If this <laughs> stuff worked, the Roman Empire would still be in existence. Uh, it wouldn't have gone bankrupt having debased its currency. So out of this banking crisis, the emergency measures 
that were wielded rightly at the beginning have morphed not just into uh, uh, a, a set of policies which has pumped up asset prices to a really dangerous degree, blown up even bigger bubbles um, that we're now uh, in the midst of, uh, and who knows how they're going to, uh, who knows what's going to happen when they eventually burst. That cure, so-called, worse than the disease, the original crisis, in my view, uh, is now completely changing orthodox macroeconomics, in my view, in a very dangerous way. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher famously said that you can't buck the market, but what what you're talking about effectively suggests that at least in the short run you can, because I think in your words you said the markets have have sort of held, kept governments hostage. This this state of affairs surely cannot last, but how do we escape from this QE, ZERP, NERP, crony capitalist trap? Uh, And if we do escape, is there a chance that, that more than a chance that whatever escape mechanism comes to pass, it will be, let's say, somewhat disorderly in financial market terms. Yeah, I mean that this 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 is this is the problem. I mean, Keynes obviously, you know, Keynes said many things that are quoted and appear on t-shirts, but I guess the one the utterance that pops into my mind listening to that question, Tim, is that the markets can stay irrational longer than we can remain solvent. Yeah. You can remain solvent. So, for, for a lot of investors, it, it, it you know they can they can agree with every word I just said. But if they haven't been in the market during this you know recent tear, then they'll have lost their job. Um, well, I'm, I'm, remi- I'm reminded of something. I'm trying to think who it was who said it. But we had a guest on some months back, and he said it might have it might have been Chris uh, might have been Chris Clark. But uh, we, we had a, a trader on. He said uh, he'd just been contacted by a headhunter, and they said we're we're now interviewing for candidates for sort of senior senior trading uh, trading positions, uh, at least at least at least four years experience required. And um, there's a whole generation of people in, well, in what's left of dealing rooms now that have never seen a bear market in anything. That's right, and that and that's the danger. So we're these things these things go in cycles, and the current upside cycle has been in you know, generational terms very long almost endless as you say um i don't i do i don't want to just be a, a cassandra I, I don't think it's constructive but i do think someone has to talk about this stuff yeah definitely um, definitely um however unpopular it makes you um because it is clearly unsustainable and what's unsustainable eventually will not be sustained um and at the very least, we have to try to get interest rates positive again. And in order to get interest rates positive again, people like you and me need to bang on about how damaging negative real interest rates are. When you can't get a return on your savings, that's extremely regressive for a large swathe of the population. When uh, bond markets uh, have gone through the looking glass, then pension funds uh, dwindle. And again, that is extremely regressive for large parts of the population. But of course, in in the cut and thrust of politics, however elegant and authoritative your your warnings and your theoretical musings, nothing's going to happen until there's another crisis, I'm afraid. The man on the street, I don't think, will react until stock prices start to fall. I think as long as stock prices or house prices are holding up, they tend to be, whilst they will complain about low interest rates, 
you won't see people marching until there's a, there's a bear, there's an actual bear market. With regard to that, how do you think this will all play out? We're in a situation now, as I said, where the markets are holding governments hostage, not just holding them to account. Um, and whenever there's the slightest sign of a downturn in either the financial markets or the economy, we just instantly weigh in with more massive, extraordinary monetary measures. Um, so, for instance, you know, the, the Fed has cut rates three times in the last few months, yes. having raised them eight or nine times under Yellen and then under Powell at the beginning. They're now cutting rates. I mean, why are we cutting interest rates in the U.S.? when the US is growing by 2% and unemployment is 2% and inflation is 2%. And yet we're still cutting rates even more. So they're even more negative. That interest rate cut, I put it to you, that interest rate cut will not have affected barely one decision, one investment decision in the real economy to build a factory or to borrow money to employ more people. These interest rate cuts are entirely for the consumption of financial markets now. And so that that's a, that's a major, major problem because every single time there's the slightest downturn, and this isn't going to stop in the run-up to the race for the White House in you know, October 2020, we are going to see more and more and more and more interest rate cuts. There is, at the, there is no moderation now in monetary policy. The only way is down. Because even when the economy is doing pretty well, as the US is, we can talk about that in great detail, the tax cuts, you know, debts getting higher. But in headline terms, as I just demonstrated, the US economy is in a good place. And yet endless rate cuts, endless rate cuts. And that won't be the last, that rate cut that we just had. Complete subjugation now by central bankers to financial markets and their political masters. And it's got gone so far, we're now getting active live politicians as central bankers. You know, Lagarde wants to be the president of France. Okay. Her political career isn't over. She's a former finance minister who has her eyes on the Elysee. And she's now the ECB chair. And she is going to pump that for all it's worth and be the opposite of restraint and the opposite of a technocrat. She's going to use that Frankfurt-based institution, as a campaigning bully pit for her own presidential ambitions, which is actually completely insane. There is a, there's an article in today's FT a column by uh, someone who works at BlackRock with the title, Central Bank's Mandates Allow Them to Tackle Climate Change. Um, is the, is the, is, I mean, apart from the fact that that seems to be just palpably absurd, is that not, is that not indicative of a bigger uh, mission creep among central bankers, that, that that what seems to have happened is that, you know, particularly during the the sort of the fever pitch of the crisis and thereafter, there's been a com- almost complete political vacuum into which central bankers have stepped on the grounds they feel that they need to be seen to be doing something. As a result, they now they now feel like they've got a right to be doing everything. I think that's indicative of of, of the problem. Look, I I, I mean, I, I think we do need to do stuff to tackle climate change. I don't think we're going to tackle climate change by um, virtue signaling our way back to the Stone Age by you know, forgetting the last 10,000 years of human development and, and banning all kinds of um, uh, mechanical industry. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the market that will um, um, solve climate change. It will be the use of incentives set by governments 
uh, and industry uh, and technology uh, and smart investment, um, mainly by the private sector, but by governments as well, that will um, bring forward the solutions to um, uh, climate change. Um, and I actually think there's some reasons to be cheerful on that front, believe it or not. Um, but the idea that a central bank should be seen as a um, sort of citadel of social policy, as a citadel of um, sort of societal um, uh, virtue signalling, as a as a as a as a place for doing anything other than the very very grown up business of monetary policy is not only ridiculous; it's also very very dangerous. But what would be their standard response to climate change? What cut interest rates? I mean, well, by 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 setting up a central bank, by presenting a central bank um, uh, as some kind of societal fun factory that we can all get behind, what they're trying to do is basically, you know, get everybody on board for whatever it is that the central bank does. So, you know, oh, that nice Christine Lagarde. You know, she's hammering interest rates even lower, you know, but she is very much on board with the climate change agenda. Let's get in the streets and, you know, scream and shout how nice she is and take our kids in push chairs with us. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of it is that they're trying to distract from what they're actually doing. They don't really want people to look at what they're doing and how perhaps they are completely redundant. Pay no um, attention to the man behind the curtain. Exactly. It's like, nothing to see here. We've got everything under control. Oh, well, by the way, you know, we've got this this bigger remit. But I, I wanted just to pick up on one other point, Lim, if I may, with regard to um, the US and perhaps here as well, even though they are cutting interest rates, couldn't we argue that perhaps the economy isn't as good as they're pro- projecting? In fact, the situation is worsening, which is why they have to keep cutting interest rates. My my feeling, and perhaps you could give us your opinion on this as well, is that we will actually hit a point where the market will cease to react to lower interest rates. And that is when you really see the, the impotency of, of these central banks, because we know it's only the market reaction to the interest rate cut that, that matters. And when the market decides, look, this is this has just gone too far. We've we've pumped assets too far and we want to take money off the table, uh, aka some, you know, the tulip bulb, um, you know, uh, bubble. And we all we all recognise that we're in a bubble. The first man to take the money off the table will be the smartest person. Sure. So there's a lot there. I do, I do agree that the US economy, you know, I, I gave those headline numbers, which you know, are, are just facts. Yeah. But I, I, I do agree that there are there are concerns, you know, just think when Barack Obama took office in 2009, the US national debt was 9 trillion. We're now, you know, 21, 22 trillion and counting. Um, um, I, I do think the US economy has room to improve um, as and when um, there's some kind of deeper trade rapprochement between um, China uh, and the US, I think that's coming down the track. Um, but there is by no, it is it is completely wrong and deeply disingenuous to say that the US economy is in a crisis situation. Oh no, not a crisis. And you should only you should only be cutting interest rates to this degree when you're in a crisis situation. And and as I said earlier, 
I don't think anyone in the real economy outside of financial markets is waiting for another interest rate cut so they can invest. On the contrary, and this talks to the second part of your question, I think we're long past the point where these interest rate cuts uh, have become counterproductive for those outside of financial markets. We're long past the point. There's an awful lot of entrepreneurs, in my view, outside of financial markets, uh, and in my experience, talking to lots of people in many different countries who are so freaked out by this stuff that they're keeping money off the table already. They're sitting on cash. I mean, that that, that gets to the heart of the problem. I, I can remember, a, a, I think it was a column in the a story in the Wall Street Journal five or six years ago, but it was basically uh, highlighting there was a, a I think it was a, a Frankfurt uh, flower seller, but it was it was a lady who had a market stall and she was getting nothing or, or less than nothing on her deposit account. And so the question is, was she saving, with, with, with interest rates negative, was she saving more or less for her pension? And the answer is she was saving more on the grounds she was so concerned about the future that she you know, she she wanted to do something about it. Now, I very much doubt whether that that is part of the sort of the ECB or, or any central bank playbook, the idea that if you cut rates below the zero band, you get people to save more. Surely the point was always that if you cut rates below zero, people will spend the money. But, you know, the, the, the idea of homo economicus doesn't really exist in the real world. So is 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 not the big, the huge risk here that despite the fact that these you know, ridiculous policies haven't worked, central banks will not be willing to be, are not willing to be shown to be completely stupid. So they'll keep on doing it until we do get some kind of inflationary pickup. They'll keep on doing it until... Until the market, until the market explodes. They'll keep on doing it until everybody becomes so outraged and alarmed by the extent of the monetary excess that there will be a collapse, I'm afraid. Mm. And the consensus towards this stuff is getting stronger. It's not like people like you and I, sceptical voices in the wind, are suddenly being heard and lauded. Um, on the contrary, we're being marginalised even more um, as more and more of the mainstream buys into this stuff. And you talked about the little... German lady selling flowers. And of course, a lot of pensioners um, rely on fixed income. You're seeing some of the political uh, fallout from this. AFD, for instance, in Germany, the first party to the right of the CDU to enter the Bundestag since the Second World War, a deeply unsavory political movement, in my view. Yes, it's got a lot of support now in East, former Eastern Germany among um, the unemployed. Uh, yes, it enjoyed a spike in its support after uh, the escalation of the uh, EU migrant crisis in 2014, 15, 16. But AFD began life, let us not forget, as an anti-ECB QE party. It began life as a protest movement against this massive central bank excess. And of course, there are particular considerations within the Eurozone that aggravate all that with a lot of you know northern Eurozone, particularly German voters feeling that they're unfairly bailing out the club med countries. I mean, we can have a conversation about that, not least because Germany has benefited enormously from Euro membership by being able to use a woefully undervalued exchange rate um, uh, for its own exporting purposes, exactly. given that it's part of a currency union. Um but you are starting to see bits and pieces of political fallout. But for the most part, politicians just want to keep turning this handle 
um, like sort of monkeys and organ grinders, because there is absolutely no short term political mileage in standing up and saying, you know what, I think we should start to address this really difficult issue. Mm. Um, but there's a big wasted opportunity here because and I go back to Yellen, who I happen to think and you guys may disagree with me. I happen to think Yellen was the best U.S. central banker since Volcker. Um, I think she deserves huge credit because what she did often in the teeth of political opposition, certainly political skepticism, is she managed to start raising rates. And she did. She wrote, raised them eight or nine times. And financial markets didn't freak out. They threatened that they would. And then they didn't. And she kept raising and she kept raising. And now Trump slash Powell and Trump being the, the, the main operative in this have completely unraveled that progress. We had a situation where rates were being steadily raised in the US. Other central banks were thinking of following suit and guiding us back to some kind of policy normality, finally shaking off these mad post-crisis policies 10 years um, on. Uh, and I saw light at the, at the end of the tunnel. Um, but now Trump's come in and he must have his 4% growth, which he promised on the campaign trail. And his tax cuts are now um, fading away. So he's got to find another lever to pull. And it's a Fed-shaped lever. I was calling at the height of uh, Yellen's campaign to get interest rates positive again and up towards normal um, uh, levels. I was calling in my columns repeatedly for a kind of inverse plaza agreement. Um, in other words, I wanted the big central banks of the world to come together and raise rates together. Why did I want that to happen? Because um, it would have signaled to the financial markets, we must now sort this out. And it also would have allowed big countries to have raised rates without the fear of um, ceding competitive disadvantage to their rivals. In other words, uh, they wouldn't have worried that by raising rates and potentially strengthening their own currency, they would have been harming their own exporters disproportionately. Um, because, of course, adding to the clamour for lower rates is Trump's determination to get a lower dollar. Um, the White House is always talking about strong dollar, but actually they like the competitive depreciation that comes from lower rates. He needs to be careful what he wishes for there, doesn't he? It can be inflationary. If yes. Jay Powell can't stand up to the president and if, if Jay Powell is unable to uh, fulfil his remit, shouldn't he have either offered to resign or resigned? Because it makes a, 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 makes a joke of, of a notionally independent central bank, doesn't it? It, it does. It does. But on, on the other hand, I mean, Trump would just get somebody even more supine in, right? But I'm just saying, in terms of Powell managing his 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 legacy, his how the historians of the future see him, they're not his, future historians are not going to look kindly on someone who just basically wilted in the face of hostile fire from the president. No, of course they're not. Of course they're not. But in practical terms, you know, if he resigned, who's Trump going to put in? Mm. Um, somebody who is even more of a, a, a crony, somebody who's even more um, willing to bow. Um, to the White House's uh, whim. Look, I do understand. I, I absolutely understand that there's a dual mandate in the US. If you know, people listening to this are, are screaming at their car dashboard, I, I totally get that. Um, but it's a different sort of constitutional sort of central bank from central banks, say, here 
in the UK. Um, uh, that that dual mandate in in the US is well understood, but we're so far beyond that now. Mm. We're so far beyond that. We have now got the president of the United States using the Fed again as a campaigning bully pit, just as um, Madame Lagarde will use the ECB as a campaigning bully pit, albeit for an election further in the future. And this is the crazy thing: central banks have been completely and utterly annexed by myopic politicians. And in that sense, the, the sort of paradigm of independent central banking, which came very much to the fore when all of us uh, having this discussion were in our formative years and learning our economics as students and undergrads and postgrads, that now, that whole edifice of sort of intellectual uh, orthodoxy uh, is being swept away. Do you think there's a danger that... Um with all these uh, emergency interest rate cuts that are going on at the moment, that when there's a true emergency, there's nothing left for the for them to do. So, for example, the, the crisis that's developing in, in the Eurozone and potentially the breakup of the Euro at some point, if that, that, is, that will be a huge market shock with which they'll have no ammunition to respond to. Yeah, that's one of the major dangers I've, I've, I've been highlighting for a long time when you have very, very negative real interest rates, you've got nowhere to go when governments are already extremely overspent. Um, and anyone who understands the difference between a debt and a deficit uh, has grasped that governments are heavily overspent, then you've got little firepower in the locker from a fiscal point of view either. And the great danger here isn't just the fact that we will be caught in another crisis without the means to um, counter it in any significant way. The real danger here is the political fallout when ordinary folk realise, yet again, the political, financial and media elite having completely dropped the ball in 2008 and 2009 and causing, causing self-inflicted wound of the biggest financial crisis, the biggest crisis of capitalism in almost 100 years, and all the political and social fallout that has come from that, which we're still in the middle of, if it happens again within 10 or 15 years of that, and the banking reforms that we were promised haven't really happened, and the regulations that were meant to be introduced have been introduced in a half-hearted way, having been massively influenced by the financial services industry when they were hitting the statute book anyway. And then there's no way to try and ameliorate the implications for ordinary folk of uh, that new crisis. Then I think politics, and it brings me no pleasure to say this, and I, I'm not trying to encourage it at all. I'm just trying to analyse this. Politics is going to become a lot more extreme. I, th I think talking of politics, we, we've got to start with, by discussing the B word. Um, Brexit. Have you had a? Um, have you managed to have a sane conversation with anyone who's a Remainer? Because I've tried and I can't. It just always descends into complete and utter chaos. Um, I, I have, um, but they're very much the exception rather than the rule. I mean, it's the source of huge sort of personal upset. Really, you know, I, I wrote a book in mid 2017 with Jared Lyons, the well-known city economist. And we wrote a very, very consensual, um, uh, readable, I think, but also very closely researched and detailed book 
called Clean Brexit, how you negotiate uh, with the European Union. And the back half of it was all about policies that the UK can implement post-Brexit, things you can't do inside the uni, in European Union, but you can do outside. So likes of you know, very activist regional policy, inland and coastal free ports and so on. And what I've found since then is that when you come up with rational reasons why you hold the position that you hold, the, the, the response to that factual analysis and historical references is that almost everybody um, who disagrees with you, they become even more shrill and start accusing you personally of bad morality uh, and all the rest of it. And I've been called some terrible names. Um, I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm a incredibly, you know, I'm the son of immigrants. I'm a pro-mass immigration person, as the book makes clear, and so is Dr. Lyons. Um, uh, I do think there should be some, some controls on immigration, like there are in other decent, liberal, successful economies like New Zealand, Canada, and Australia. But I find this has become so tribal, uh, and there's such bad faith um, on the part of almost everyone who comes across a, a moderate, economically qualified, reasonably articulate Brexiteer, because they think that you're you're dangerous. If they can paint all people who voted Leave as either thick, uh, racist, or or you know high Tory, then then they will. But if you're hopefully palpably none of those things, and yet you still want to leave the European Union, and you provide rational reasons why, and you provide historic evidence why, for instance, the single market hasn't been that great for the UK, and it doesn't work for services, which is a large part of what we do. Um, and the customs union is deeply regressive because it means poor people pay more for um, imports of stuff in order to protect inefficient producers of that stuff elsewhere in the in the UK. And you point out that actually most of our trade is outside the EU and that part of our trade is growing and it's in surplus. Uh, it's the biggest part of our trade um, uh, and that most trade in the world happens under WTO rules. If, if you point out these things, then the response is, is almost never, oh, I'll have a think about that. Can you show me the reference? Um, bye. Nice to see you. People turn their back and having sh shouted and screamed at you. Look, this is the way I, I see, see the politics of Brexit. So 52% of people voted leave. I think almost all of those people, to a man and a woman, still want to leave, despite the ongoing drumbeat of relentless negativity uh, about that decision, not least from our broadcast media. Um, of the 48 who voted remain, many of many of them for very good reasons. There are good reasons to remain. Uh, there are good reasons to leave. There are no reasons to half leave, half remain, which is where we've been headed. But of those 48%, the vast majority of those, I'd say at least two thirds, maybe even four fifths, don't want to leave. Um, but they're reconciled to the fact that we should because that's what people voted for. And it's, it is grotesque to not implement the results of a referendum. What you've got, though, is about a fifth of those remainers or maybe a third of those remainers, something like that, maybe 10 or 15% of the population who are and will remain completely unreconciled, absolutely determined to get their own way. Yeah. And these are often people who have always got their own way about everything. And the trouble is, even though they're a small percentage of the population, they are a large 
proportion of the people in this country who make television news programs and write newspaper columns. And, and, and populate the Conservative Party. There's, there's a quote from um, J.K. Galbraith, which I think really nails this. It's face, no, no, face. sorry, I, they, they, don't, they don't populate the Conservative Party. This 10 or 15% of people, this 10 or 15% of people are the unreconciled Remainers. And of that 10 and 15% of people, uh, they're a small part of the population, but they, are, they make up a large proportion of the people who write newspaper columns and make television news programmes. Do you think that there's also, there's a bit, there's a crisis in politics. There's, you know, the the financial system's not working in the way it should, but there's also a crisis in the media that's not immediately apparent. You know, people are losing trust in the media and I I think it's moving towards, you know, trust in individuals in the media rather than so-called organisations. I don't know what you think about that and the, the perhaps direction for the, for the media going forward. I think there is a, a, a loss of trust in the media. And I say that not as somebody, you know, sitting in a bedsit in Kentish town with a tin hat on my head. I say this as, you know, one of the leading people of my generation when it comes to being you know, part of the broadcast media and the, and the broader commentary. People listening to this podcast are probably listening to it because of the places I've worked and the things that I've done with all respect. So I'm not some, you know, embittered outsider here. I'm somebody who's worked at some of the blue ribboned places in terms of media in this country. And because I've done that, I can say with confidence that almost everyone else who's done it is culturally, you know, just doesn't like Brexit and doesn't want it to happen. And and more than that, a lot of them are determined that it won't happen, I'm afraid. Um, I think some of the leading broadcast news people in this country are out of control if you look at their twitter feeds it's almost as if it's almost as if it's a a virility symbol um how pro the remain side they can be um and ordinary punters who are paying their license fee uh, and who maybe voted leave and even if they voted remain are increasingly shocked i mean i live outside the m25 i live in a town where there's it's a relatively affluent town but there's a very broad range of people who live here and it's increasingly clear to me that the main it's increasingly clear to me that the easy assumptions of our um, city based uh, media um, um, folk are increasingly far away from how most people think and feel because we have very few now ordinary people making decisions at the top of the broadcast media in my experience. That, that quote, by the way, just if anyone wants to hear it, is, is, is a J.K. Galbraith quote. Uh, Faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving that there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy on the proof. I think, I think, that's, I think that's clear. And, and it's also clear that very few people want to change their mind when you know, their income and their living depends on them being right anyway. Mm-hmm. Going back to financial markets and investment, it's going to take a, somebody with extremely deep pockets and an enormous will to try and buck this trend at the moment, to try and say, look, there are major problems here. George Soros, he's got deep pockets. Yeah, he has. And, and how will that go down? I mean, I mean, <laughs> that, that would, you know, fair play to George Soros. He's made some good calls. Um, but, you know, just imagine as and when there's another crisis and not only are, you know, lives destroyed, families broken up, businesses crushed, dreams trampled upon but then you've got you know some of these headline 
international investors um, yet again making out like bandits. That's gonna that's gonna be great, isn't it? For for social cohesion, that's really gonna propel capitalism back to the bosom of our hearts. I mean, I'm I'm serious about this. As and when there's another financial crisis, and if you look at stock market valuations, uh, and if you look at the extent to which um, central banks have expanded their balance sheets in recent years. Um, uh, and if, if you get into the financial markets and sense the amount of hubris that there is, there can be no other responsible um, uh, conclusion than the fact that this looks like a crisis market. Um, this is not um, some kind of uh, alarmist analysis. It's responsible analysis. Mm. And as and when that crisis comes, uh, I do really have deep concern at what it will do to the views of um, uh, the financial, political and business elite, as I've said, that the views of those people held by ordinary folk outside of those categorizations, which means the vast majority um, of people. And that will, unfortunately, and it's a source of deep concern. It's why I'm talking about this stuff. It'd be a lot easier to not talk about this stuff. Um, that's a big concern that I have. I do worry that it will, the, the extremes that we've seen emerging in, in politics across Europe and, and elsewhere uh, will be pulled apart even further, I'm afraid. You talk about social cohesion, and, and a big part of that is a, a growing perception, real or or Im- imagined, that um, that 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 society is getting more unequal. And to that point, it's impossible to have the discussion without without talking about property. Um, so you, you're very shortly about to have a book published called Home Truths, the UK's chronic housing shortage, how it happened, why it matters, and the way to solve it. So let's talk a bit about that. Sure. So, um, so I've written this book about the housing market. I've written this book because... I think that housing is the most important domestic issue we face. Uh, and I think once Brexit um, at some stage is resolved, housing will become the stuff of frontline politics. Um, it won't be news to anybody that young people are finding it very difficult to buy a house. Um, um, and also, we should say there's a crisis of social housing, too, in this country and also of homelessness. So this is right. This isn't just about, you know, Chaunty and Sophie can't buy a, a place in, in Kensington. They have to go to Stratford. I mean, this is not just about thwarted um, or delayed um, property purchases by well-heeled people. Um, this is about uh, ordinary people, a young couple um, not having kids because they can't buy a house and their rented property is um, extremely expensive and they just can't afford it. Um, so in 1991, at, at the age of 27, which was then the average age that women had their first child, uh, 15% of those women were living in rented accommodation. That's now 40%. Um, so generation rent is now having fewer children. You've got a third of adult men aged between 20 and 30 still living in their childhood bedrooms. That's up from a fifth just 15 years ago. We've got a situation where uh, the green belt, so-called, uh, a lot of it isn't green, a lot of it is urban scrub, covers 13% of the landmass 
of England and far from being built on uh, and uh, stripped away and, quote, concreted over, the Greenbelt is now 130% bigger than it was in 1979 as councils have added to it. The solution to this crisis is uh, there is no magic bullet, but I do think a prerequisite of addressing this crisis of affordability. The average home now is eight times earnings, up from three and a half times um, back in the late 90s. Uh, And that crisis of affordability is right across the country, by the way. Those multiples are way above historic averages almost everywhere in the UK. Addressing this crisis, though, means addressing um, the warped market for land that we have in the UK. Back in the 50s, when you bought a house, between 3 and 5% of the cost of that home was the land that was sitting on. Uh, that proportion is now 70%. Land is land that has planning permission is grotesquely overpriced. Those high prices mean that small builders can't get access to it. Big builders can. They sit on it. They deliberately contrive scarcity. They take out planning permissions uh, and then sit on those planning permissions. So local councils can't give more planning permissions because they already have. So we've got a huge glut of unbuilt planning permissions across the UK. Um, um, And uh, we're in a situation where the house building industry is increasingly concentrated. Uh, It needs a full scale, in my view, competition commission inquiry. Uh, We need genuine competition in the house building market uh, again. Uh, And you can only do that if small firms can get a look in and they can only get a look in if land prices Uh, are accessible. uh, And that means um, diffusing this kind of speculative um, engine at the centre of the housing market, which is the fact that when you get planning permission, the full upside of the increase in value when you get planning permission, and often land goes up two, three hundred fold, that full upside goes to the landowner and or the developer who's optioned the land off the farmer or whoever it is. Uh, and or the land agent whose sole mission in life is to sit on land uh, and speculate. Um, those gains have to be shared, and they're shared in many other advanced capitalist societies in the world, uh, across the continent of Europe, Germany, Netherlands, across Asia, uh, in parts of the United States. We haven't done that in the UK since 1961. There was a piece of legislation in 1961 that assured that the full extent of those that upside when planning permission is given goes to the landowner. And that legislation has to be reversed. And there is actually, believe it or not, a growing consensus that what I've just said is correct, however radical it may sound. And that consensus goes all the way from Shelter, the campaigning homelessness organisation, because if you have cheaper land, Local authorities can build more houses themselves. And of course, local authority house building or house building on behalf of local authorities has all but stopped in this country. Goes from shelter right across the political spectrum. There are many very thoughtful Labour backbenchers, Tory backbenchers, very influential thinkers, uh, think tanks like the CPS uh, onward that are very much uh, centre and centre right. this is an idea, by the way, that was championed by that well-known left-winger, Keith Joseph, <laughs> of course, the Thatcherite outrider who founded the CPS. And indeed, I'm giving a talk about precisely this issue at the CPS in a couple of weeks' time after my book's published on uh, Tuesday, November the 19th. 
So this is an idea, um, land value capture, the sharing of the gains in order to take the speculative heat out of the land market in order that house prices gradually can, can normalize. Uh, I'm not looking for a house price collapse in any way. I'm looking for a, 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 a leveling, a slowdown in the rate of growth and a leveling of house prices. I'm looking for a building boom. No recovery from recession in the UK has been slower than the one that we've seen since the global financial crisis. That's partly because of the excessive monetary policy and the implications on investor sentiment in the real economy that I talked about. It's also because this is the first recovery from recession that hasn't been accompanied by a big increase in house building, a proper increase in house building. So it's no coincidence that this recovery has been the slowest, the most gradual, the most unimpressive um, in recorded history. Wouldn't one solution be just to raise interest rates and take the speculative element out of it? Because people used to think of property as just a place to live, and now they think of it as a way to you know, invest and think of their pension. And, and obviously that's magnified as you go up to, to bigger and bigger companies. I think that's part of it. And I think part of the reason that house prices have gone up so much faster than earnings in recent years, sparking this unaffordability crisis, is monetary policy. The Bank of England quietly published a, a, a report last year that's referenced in my book. I couldn't find that they ever published a press release about it, but anyway, that said about 25% of the increase in house prices over the last 10 years has been because of monetary policy. And I, I think that's that sounds plausible to me. Um, but this goes way beyond monetary policy because we're simply not building enough houses. The headline numbers of houses that we're building are something like 228,000 a year now, uh, which is way below uh, the 250 to 300,000 that we need a year um, additions that Kate Barker highlighted in her landmark report back in uh, 2004. Uh, and since Barker, we've averaged you know, between 150 and 160. But there has been a headline increase in the last couple of years, which ministers always cite when they're uh, grilled on the Today programme and elsewhere about the shortage of homes. But that number that they cite, it's not new houses built. It's uh, it's not housing completions. It's another figure called net additional dwellings, which is much higher. New houses built is more like 170, 180,000 at the moment. Net additional dwellings is 210, 220. And net additional dwellings, of course, well, not of course, because most people don't know this. Certainly, most uh, journalists, uh, but net additional dwellings includes yeah, a conversion. So you get a house and you split into four flats. That's four net additional dwellings, even though there's been no building. And actually, the amount of living space has been reduced because of the partition walls. Uh, but most importantly, in the recent context, net additional dwellings includes houses built under so-called permitted development rights um, in office buildings, uh, shops converted into houses. Now, look, don't get me wrong. In some city centres in the UK, you've got a, a, a good quality office building. Um, our work patterns are changing. There's more distance working. You can convert that into nice one and two bedroom flats. And that's a great thing. And they are legitimate homes. But the trouble is those house, those additions are uh, the exception rather than the rule, because a lot of these houses, these new apartments, converted from office blocks uh, and houses converted from shops because they 
use permitted development rights. For some reason, I have no reason why, I guess it's lobbying by the house building industry and property developers. The usual space regulations, the amount of space that these apartments and houses should have by law are waved away. So you now have building built under permitted development rights, um, homes in, in, in office blocks that are often extremely small, very, very low uh, uh, quality. Uh, and these are, you know, the, the slums of tomorrow. Permitted development rights, conversion of office blocks is not a solution to our housing crisis. It's not a sustainable increase in the rate of house building, which uh, we need. It's a one-off thing. You can only convert decent office blocks and shops once. And yet ministers seem to be using these numbers pumped up by, uh, I mean, we're talking about 30 or 40,000 of the 220,000 headline homes built in inverted commas uh, are under these permitted development rights. And also under permitted development rights, uh, the developers don't have any obligations in terms of providing affordable housing, uh, other infrastructure that you should be contributing to under things like Section 106, the Community Infrastructure Levy. So these permitted development rights, I mean, the Labour Party has actually said they'll get rid of building or presenting, converting homes under these permitted development rights. And they're completely right, by the way. They're completely right. I completely agree with the Labour folk on the housing side on this particular uh, uh, point. But the Tories are, of course, very, very close to property development interests. And it's going to be a test of, of, of I think, their policy now if they agree also to scrap this grotesque loophole under which we are producing substandard uh, homes. You, you've seen some local councils, in particular Croydon, have you know, unilaterally stopped doing this because some of the homes built in shabby office blocks are, are just beyond the pale. Have you ever considered a um, career in, in politics yourself, Liam? Yeah, lots of people have asked me to get involved in politics as an MP and advisor and things like that. But I don't, I've never really had the, the right offer. And also, I'm, I don't ever think I'd do it. Uh, I think I'm more useful as a... As your provocateur. As an outsider looking in. I, I, I do and have always felt a bit of an outsider uh, in the UK. I'm, as I said, I'm an Irish Catholic who grew up in this country in the 70s and 80s. So never, if I'm honest, felt fully accepted uh, and, and still don't. I do want to be useful, though. I, I do tend to write things that make my life more difficult. There's very little upside in this country to being proved right after the fact. You know, people who have been screaming at you on television don't ring up three years later and say, oh, yeah, sorry, Liam, you were right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't tend to happen. Yeah, I have obviously thought about it and it'd be an obvious thing for me to do, but I think I'm better off and everyone else is better off if I just carry on doing what I'm doing and trying to inject some thoughts and ideas and particularly convey complex ideas in in hopefully a digestible way to a broad audience uh, i just i just hope that I've, i'll always have the sort of media platform to do so i mean you you have an ability to be able to go across politics and just look at what what is correct in the facts and i guess in politics 
they they tend to have just a polarized view that the opposition is always wrong and and clearly you you can see beyond that and perhaps that that element wouldn't work in politics because you you might have to sort of attack the other side on something you actually agree with and that would go against your principles so it seems like your integrity is much higher well your integrity is much higher but the, the the trust that people give you is much lower you know labor people can say oh my god he writes for the telegraph he's a bastard uh, and the tories can say my god he's an irish mick who lived in Russia? He's an animal. Um, I mean, they're, they're, I, I, I often suffer from that, and it's the source of, you know, if I'm honest, a lot of personal sadness. You never really seem to be trusted by anyone because you're willing to talk to anyone. Uh, it's just a function of how I grew up. I, I grew up having to duck and dive and and present myself uh, in a heartfelt way to often very, very sceptical people, given my name. And and I wouldn't want to overplay it, but I wouldn't want to ignore it either. It's a major part of my psychological makeup and of my background. To be a working-class Irish person who didn't want to be a builder in the 70s and 80s, you know, was not cool. And then as you sort of bang doors down and try and scale the heights or at least the minor foothills of the British media... Um, not everybody wants to see you succeed. An awful lot of people don't. But I've been very, very lucky over the years. The, the Telegraph has been willing to give me a place to write, tucked away in the business section, and it's allowed me to convey some 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 of my ideas. Of course, I'd like a much bigger platform. I'd like more scope to bring what I know to bear on the mainstream uh, debate. I'm often stopped on the train or in the street and asked why I don't do more on, on television and radio. And, and I say, well, you know, cause I'm, <laughs> I try, but I don't get the chance. Yeah. I, I can imagine that they, they wouldn't want to give you the platform as in this environment. Cause you're too, you're talking too much sense, aren't you? Really? I, I think, I think we can overplay it seeing as we're all culturally English, that we now have to go back into self-deprecation and modesty mode. Right. Okay. So we'll do that. But it does, it does, Okay, I've done that. That's over. It does rankle, yeah, because there are very few, you know, trained economists in the British media who can who can write a newspaper column in, you know, forty five minutes. I'd, uh, I'd I'd single out also the um, the Spectator uh, of all of the the publications that I that I read. I think I probably respect the the quality and variety of the spectators writing above probably more than any other, particularly because I, I, I say that as someone who's so disenchanted with the direction of travel of the economist and the financial times. Yeah. I think the, the spectator does deserve credit. I think Fraser Nelson is, will go down as one of the great editors in the spectator's history, not to say that he's not going to stay. He's still a very young man, but the great thing about the spectator, and I really enjoy um, this aspect of the spectator is most people that don't know what they're talking about will say, oh, they're all bloody right-wing bastards. Come on, man. I mean, The Spectator has provided a platform for some of the leading Remain voices in mm. this country, not least Matthew Paris. Mm. Fraser will go out of his way to find a really good writer who disagrees with the house view of The Spectator. And that is why it's such a good read, because you get to write in The Spectator, and I'm privileged to write in The Spectator from time to time. Again, I'd like to do a lot more. We'll see what happens. But you get to write in The Spectator if you write well. You have to be able to write really, really well. There's a very, very high bar in terms of the quality of the writing and the way you uh, express yourself. And that's why so many people read it from across the political spectrum. That's why sales of the magazine are soaring. That's why so many people listen to their 
excellent podcasts. I mean, yeah, who isn't going to want to hear what James Forsyth and Katie Balls have got to say about politics, whether you're on, on the left or the right? And that's why the Spectator podcast often features people on the left. They want to come on. They, they will endure the opprobrium of their some of their peers by going on it because it's so well-informed and it has such a broad audience. And it's a little beacon, really, in my view. I wouldn't want to overstate it. But if there isn't a magazine with a clear identity about what it is, um, and yet it's willing within its own pages to have a, a really broad, no-holds-barred debate where it goes out on a limb to accommodate views that are unexpected. And that is, you know, as you say, Tim, you know me a long time. I am an intellectual omnivore and a sort of political, um, um, politically very gregarious. I, I have very good friends from across the political spectrum. That's why it's so annoying just to be dismissed because of the paper I usually write for by many on the left. But the thing about the, the spectator is it, it's able to appeal to people across the political spectrum. People on the left, in my experience, almost all of them, there are exceptions, they will look at you and unless you agree with them, they will start questioning your morality. Mm. And that's the problem. That's the problem. They will dismiss you as completely morally suspect if you don't agree with them. Now, I want to see the good society. I want to see poor people made better off. A lot of my young journalistic career, I was trying to move heaven and earth to save people's final salary pensions and to stop ordinary people getting ripped off because that's the, you know, that's the part of society I came from. Um, and I felt a huge obligation to do so. But if you think that the best way to do that is by, you know, not bankrupting your government, if you think the best way to do that is by offering tax incentives rather than always wanting more higher spending, if you think the best way to do that is to regulate the banks rather than constantly bash them over the head with rhetoric, then you're you're dismissed as somebody who is, you know, you know, hard right, far right. Um and that that is that's which is ridiculous in my case. Um but and that's getting worse, you know, it's almost as if uh, anyone who isn't a fully signed up Corbyn Easter is a Nazi. And, but most of the UK is is absolutely middle of the road. Our voters are very, very clever people. They're pragmatists. We have a huge swathe of, of swing voters in this country. Tribal allegiances among the population are actually breaking down at a time when tribal allegiances amongst our political media elite are hardening and coalescing. And this is a source, I think, of the increasing disconnect. So I try and be somebody who, you know, has hopefully unanswerable economic credentials. You don't have to agree with me, but you can't say, you know, I haven't thought about it. And you can't say that I can't add up because I've got the qualifications to show that I can. But I, I try to be somebody who brings facts, factual analysis to bear on these often ideological questions. And people don't like it. People don't like to be proved wrong. Um, and so people in my position do need the support of media organizations to uh, keep trying to put this stuff out because it, it's a hard road and uh, you get a lot of brickbats. Speaking of uh, beacons of objectivity takes us neatly to the BBC. Um, do you think the BBC <laughs> will survive 
it, in its current form, the uh, if we get, let's say, for the sake of argument, a, a conservative majority at the next election? Well, you know, I grew up in a house pretty much with no books, and the BBC was a was a was a lifesaver for me uh, as a as a kid. The, the the programs and all the rest of it, and I'm a staunch defender uh, of the BBC. We need, I think, the BBC in in some way, shape, or form. But I do think in recent years. BBC News has has very much lost its way and it needs we've done very well in terms of diversity of gender and um, ethnicity on our screens but as that those under those two headings diversity has improved diversity in terms of opinion and class has become almost non-existent we've do, we've gone into some kind of period of, of deep groupthink uh, and that's a, a great shame and I know obviously hundreds of people who work at the BBC, and many of them are very, very talented. But there is now a sort of siege mentality. And I think the BBC, since the referendum, has made some huge errors uh, in the way it's presented the national debate. Um, I think it wasn't bad in the run-up to the referendum, but since the referendum, um, a kind of uh, way of working seems to have emerged that it's always right to assume that Brexit is terrible, it's always right to assume that Remain is, uh, and even reversing the referendum is the moderate, um, reasonable thing to do. When it's actually an extremely um, incendiary thing to do to ignore and then reverse a referendum, it's 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 um, deeply controversial. Um, implementing uh, the result of a referendum uh, is completely reasonable, um, and yet those positions have been reversed. Uh, and the way they've been presented has been completely reversed. Um, I, I, I should say, and you know, you take your life in your hands when you, you certainly your sort of media um, uh, life in your hands. When I say that, you know, I have never been. You know, the main the main discussion programs. Have you ever seen a, a majority on those panels of people that have voted to leave? No, there is always, always, always always a majority on those panels of people who voted to remain always it it suggests it suggests to me that the people who are doing these programs have a very naive view of the sophistication of their viewers it's not like people aren't going to notice these things that's the that's the thing and if you point it out on the program you know that's apparently a like charles moore has completely reasonably that's a, a, a an incredibly provocative thing to do Perhaps only Charles Moore can point it out. No one can ever, whatever you think of Charles Moore, you know, when you've edited The Telegraph, you've edited The Spectator, you've written one of the landmark documentaries already of the 21st century, you can't be touched. You know, he's not going to mind if the BBC never have him on again. He'll see it as a point of honour. But for almost anyone who isn't in that, you know, strata of, of mega untouchable seniority at the end of their career, sorry, Charles, but, you know, towards the end of their career when they're deep well very well established to point what i've just pointed out is i mean it's sort of career suicide right and yet all i'm doing is saying what millions of people watching the show are thinking and now i'll probably never be invited on again (laughs) but you know someone's got to say this yes absolutely i've never been on a panel that hasn't been overwhelmingly remain okay and everyone is paying for this program it is not the bbc's producers program it is the people's programme. The panel has to reflect occasionally the fact 
that the country voted to leave, and it never does. It's it's just astonishing. I just think it's 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 so biased that it's working. It's definitely working against them. The more they do it, the more angry people get. The more obvious it becomes. And if they think it's a it's a, a strategy that's fooling the people, then it's really not. It's just doing the opposite. Yeah. In my in my view, I don't think any. I think you're absolutely right. People are much smarter than they're giving them credit, and they're not. They're not just going to look at the BBC as being objective. They're going to say, no, that that this looks wrong. Um, their instincts are good. So the more people that, like us that point it out, perhaps the more people will look at this. You're willing to look at the Remain side, part of the Remain side, and say, yeah, look, you know, they've got some ideas. You're look, you're willing to say, look, Labour are right in this in this area. You're, you're yeah, absolutely, you, you know, absolutely. You're, you're if, not, you look at the, if you look the at the acknowledgements of my book. Home Truths, right? Yeah, my book has an endorsement on its front cover by a bloke called Andrew Neil. Yes, I saw that. And then it has an endorsement by Shelter. Yes. Now, for me, that's what I'm most proud of. The fact that somebody of Andrew Neil's seniority and you know, massive ability and intellect thinks that I've written a good book. And then the fact that the chief executive of Shelter thinks I've written a good book. A book like that deserves a wide uh, and considered hearing by our political elite. And we'll see how much publicity it gets. But that's what we need to be trying to do as, as, as a thinker, um, a, a policy person in the media. That's what we should be trying to do. Not just saying what one party thinks. You get some superannuated job as a special advisor with a pension and then you can go and work in strategy consulting for the rest of your life. Not just telling a particular politician what they want to hear. It's about coming up with things that the likes of Andrew Neil and Shelter can agree on. Yes, absolutely. And and just remind us, when is the book going to be released? Um, Tuesday, November the 19th. November the 19th. Fantastic. So, Tim, what do you think? Should we go to go to Media Picks or Why not? Why not? I'd like to highlight two things. Uh, the first thing I'd like to highlight is a BBC programme, a series of BBC programmes, um, because much of what the BBC does... Uh, I admire deeply, um, so I'm in no way bashing an organisation uh, just for the sake of it. And as I said, I'm an Irish Catholic who grew up during the Troubles, both in, in London, but also spending a lot of my school holidays in, in the Republic of Ireland, where in Mayo, where my father is from. And so I've taken a very deep interest in, in, in Irish politics generally and the Troubles in particular um, over the years. And the BBC has produced a really, really impressive series of programs uh, called Spotlight on the Troubles, A Secret History. And I haven't been watching it on television. I've been watching it um, on uh, the iPlayer. Whenever I get a spare moment late at night at home, uh, I watch another episode. I've watched all seven now. It's a really fabulous look, including not just incredible footage, but new interviews by some of the leading players guiding us through uh, the history of the Troubles. So that's the first thing. Uh, I'd like to highlight. Uh, the second thing I'd like to highlight, which by coincidence also refers to Ireland because I've just come back from it, is Kilconomics. A, is Kilconomics, a festival of economics and comedy that takes part that takes place in Kilkenny every year in November. <laughs> wow! How can you tell the difference between the economists and the comedians? Because on stage, the in order to highlight the differences um, and a sort of role reversal. There's, there's one comedian who's the compare, and that comedian's dressed in a suit and tie like an economist, and the economists are dressed in sort of jeans and T-shirts. Brilliant. Trainers Brilliant. like the comedians. And 
you know, I'm very lucky. I've been to Kilconomics just celebrated its 10th anniversary. I've been to most of them as a panelist over the years. It's the brainchild of a very, very clever set of guys and girls led by the Irish economist David Williams and his co-founder, a guy called Richard Cook, who's a very well-known talent agent, uh, sort of media impresario. Richard founded this uh, festival in Kilkenny called the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival. Then he got together with David McWilliams and founded uh, Kilconomics. And they've also got another festival called Subtitle, which is when casting agents meet actors, which has also got now an international reputation. Kilkenny is a beautiful little city in the southeast of Ireland. There, um, there are lots of big venues. Uh, there are lots of tiny little pub venues and people bop between the various sessions. And, you you know, I, I literally shared a platform this weekend with the likes of Paul Krugman, uh, Yanis Varoufakis. Oh, brilliant. Uh, He's excellent. Dan Arley. I mean, some of the top, top names in economics. Um, the FT to... The- and, uh, and Paul Krugman. Yeah. The FT, to their credit, have got very much involved with Kilconomics. They see the value in it. So you have FT pundits there too, you know, the likes of Robert Shrimsley, obviously very knowledgeable on UK politics um, and economics. He leads their group of correspondents who are there. Simon Cooper, another excellent FT writer who's been involved with Kilconomics pretty much from the outset. So it's a broad, there, there are a number of panellists who go back every year, uh, academic economists and, and economic writers in the media uh, like me. And there are other panellists that sort of come in for a year or two here and there. The, the standard is very, very high, I would say, in terms of the panellists, but the extremely sharp Irish stand-up comedians who are very knowledgeable about economics themselves often uh, make sure that the conversation is whatever is the opposite of pompous and hedged. It becomes um, a hilarious yet deeply revealing exercise in economic discussion and good-natured truth-telling. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Tim, what, what, what have you got? I've got nothing, nothing quite to compare uh, but to the majesty of Kilconomics. A uh, film I saw last night, um, Galveston, with Elle Fanning and Ben Foster, uh, very, very briefly, Ben Foster plays a hitman who's diagnosed with sort of terminal lung cancer at the start of the film. Um, kind of picks up almost by accident this this sort of uh, waif and stray, uh, Al Fanning, who's coming from... Everything about this is poor white trash. The people in it aspire to be poor white trash. Uh, it's 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 desperate. It's a desperately sort of grungy, grimy fair. Um, almost film noir, but... Um, uh, surprisingly affecting, and I don't think I've ever seen Ben Foster in a better performance. So, if you like your drama bleak, um, with 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 flashes of violence and uh, possible hopes of redemption, then that film would be Galveston. Great, fantastic. Well, I, I'd like to echo what Liam was saying about the BBC because I totally agree that in terms of programming and media and other things. They're just absolutely fantastic. When it comes to news, it's another matter. But, you know, some of my favourite programmes are BBC programmes. So I think that's a very important point to make. And just to add to that, my pick for this uh, podcast is going to be one of their podcasts, which is The Missing Crypto Queen. Um, So that's a podcast that was produced um, by or created by Jamie Bartlett. And it's um, a podcast about the OneCoin saga, a... um, that Dr. 
Ruga Ignatova, who persuaded millions of people Jeez, to... that's easy for you to say. It is easy for me to say. <laughs> who, who persuaded millions of people to join a financial revolution. And it's it's just fascinating. It's, um, it's uh, what is it, an eight-part series, I think. And, uh, yeah, so it's really good listening. Uh, there's a lot that's a lot of confusion around cryptocurrencies. And he, I, I kind of put it into the same categories, in some ways, religion, where... There will always be people who are living in that area where there's a lack of understanding and they're looking to profit from it. And this is one of those examples. So, um, so yeah, so that, that, that's my pick for the, for the podcast. So look, Liam, just to say, thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and we hope to have you back. Um, good luck with the book. If listeners want to get hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Would it be on Twitter or could they email you? I know they can read your they, column. They can, they can get hold of me on Twitter or they can, if they go on my website, just Google Liam Halligan, you'll find it. There's a comment section there where you can get hold of me. Fantastic. What is your Twitter handle? At Liam Halligan. Fantastic. Well, that's brilliant. We'll put links to everything in the show notes. Just say thanks again, Liam. Thanks again, Tim. And we'll catch you next time. All the best. All the best. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bye-bye. Liam. Right. So are we going to do... Ask Tim Price now, I think, if, if you've if got... If you fancy, yeah, if you, I'm, game, if, I'm game. If you've got time. We've got a couple of questions that came in uh, from... Let me just get my phone. So we've got a follow-on from Millionaire Mentor. So he basically said, you know, after you responded to his question from before about house price inflation, he's saying, thanks... Uh, you, you must have seen this because it's in your Twitter feed, but he said, mm. thanks... Thanks for answering my question. My response is, given that you agree with my thesis, do you find it surprising that our political overlords and the MSM have not mentioned similar concerns? I've not seen my thesis suggested elsewhere. And, and that, so was did, the, that was the, a, that uh, a policy of house price inflation was, was deliberate, basically, I think was the, the thrust of it. Yeah, I've got a lot of sympathy for that, and and I think you can you, you, know, you only have to refer to the last half hour of, of this recording and and see what uh, what Liam has to say. It it, it comes across whether it's ex- extremely explicit or merely a kind of byproduct. This is something that that has benefit is clearly benefited. It's like the you know that was the line from um, all the president's men: follow the money. Yes, who's to, who, to, qui bono? Who benefits from this stuff? Well, the reality is if you're if you were long property, if you've been long property and financial assets, you've actually done very nicely out of the global financial crisis. So there was a, a, a thing I saw, a, a, a little, a, probably a tweet I saw on Twitter um, only a few days ago, which raised the question, was this, was this a deliberate policy or, or merely sort of accidental uh, creation of gigantic amounts of wealth among the 1%? You know, discuss. Yeah. Um, great. And um, from... David, at most certainty on Twitter, he's asking, with black box systems already being used in the financial system, do you think AI will ever outrank 99.8% of human investors? Not at all, or do you think they already do now? This, this is it, it, even more interesting as a question, given firstly that we were talking about um, DeepMind and AlphaGo yes. uh, uh, recently. And also, I've just started reading uh, The Man Who Solved the Markets, which is a, a, a biography of Jim Simons, yes. who's the most successful uh, investor in recent history. So if you thought Warren Buffett had the title, stand, mm. stand aside, Warren, because it's actually Jim Simons of Renaissance Technologies. Um, and that's, that's largely through, I haven't finished it yet, but that's largely through the implementation of AI-type uh, approach to trading. 
Um, in the light of, of firstly seeing that AlphaGo um, documentary, it's worth bearing in mind that that artificial intelligence is man-made. So, I mean, it's not like so debating the number of angels dancing on the head of a pin. It is a, it's a fair point. This isn't an entirely. It's not like sort of Terminator X and the war against the machines. This is this is all just. It's another manifestation of human ingenuity. Yes. Um, so it's not it's not proper machine it's not proper machine learning or proper machine uh, intelligence because it's that that software was coded by human beings. Nevertheless, it's clearly unsettling to think that you've got algorithms and software that are basically outperforming the the nearly everybody else in the market. I I it, it seems to me that you can never have a situation when any given approach automatically wins out against everybody else because if that was happening in the economic system it would ultimately be regulated back into order so just in the same way that you'll never get a company that's ultimately you know the world inc because it gets it gets sliced and diced and antitrusted long before that happens yes um so i don't think you could ever have a strategy that, that basically that beat everything else um but that said it, it seems to me abundantly clear that algorithmic based approaches have something to bring to the party. Um, markets are not necessarily 100% rational or 100% efficient, but they clearly have the potential to provide income uh, return streams to systems that, that go about things in a different way to you know, the rank and file of, an, of human investors. We endorse this anyway, because we allocate 25%, 20, 25% of our client portfolios to systematic trend following strategies. So we're believers in this stuff. Um, but ultimately, we'd say that those those systems are, the, uh, and again, not to put too fine a point and not to sort of split hairs, but they're systems created by human beings using, you know, advanced maths and uh, and the rest of it. Will they ever outrank everybody else? I mean, in a sense, in a sense, that's 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 partly happened. If if, if the history of Renaissance technologies is a is a is a sign of things to come, um, I, I I think a I'm not sure I'm bright enough to work out who ultimately wins out on this. But I think I, I think what what is probably desirable is a is a a market environment where you let all these different things duke it out, and that's been the case since time immemorial. Um, the ultimate proof of of the pudding will be in the profitability of the system. So, um, and, and it's I, we know also to our own from our own experience, it's been difficult for systematic trend followers to make money over the last few years. Whether that's a reflection of the distortions of markets that, that are symptomatic of things like you know QE and NERP and ZERP. Or whether it's merely a, a blip, uh, a speed bump along the road, it's too early to say. It may just be a narrative. But either way, I think certainly what is healthiest for the market is 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 uh, an environment where you allow as many different approaches to to duke it out and fight for supremacy as you can. The thing that's given me the most concern, I think, over the last X years has not been AI in any form. It's been um, the gadarene swine uh, rushing into passive investing because the one the one huge beef i have with passive investing is it's completely indiscriminate it's completely non-discriminating so in other words if you're willing to go 100% passive route you're basically saying tell tell you what i just want average i just want the market average i don't care what crap is in that market i don't care how overpriced it is i just want that average return because that's that's the antithesis of what capitalism surely is all about but in terms of the ai thing um I, I'm uh, as stated. I'm not sure it can ever beat out everything else because a the market won't allow it, and b the regulators won't allow it. But 
it's surely just healthy to have as many different strategies working at the same time, fighting it out amongst themselves. If I'm able to to throw my my two pennies worth in here, um, this is a question I was asking myself over 10 years ago, actually more. Um, I read, I'll have to look at the date of the book, but Ray Kurzweil's um, the Singularity. No, it was, Singular- a, it was a different book. Uh, it was um, The Rise of the Spiritual Machine. Ah, and, okay. And, um, and so my question was exactly this, you know, because I look at the market technically, will I be looking at technical patterns that will be generated by AI machines? And when will it cease to work as a method of analysis and, and trading? Well, the, public, uh, and, the publication data, that was January the 1st, 1999. Okay, well, that's when I bought it. So that's when I was thinking about it. And so, um, so if you think where we are now, AI is not as clever as people think it really is. And you have to remember that AI learns through, you, you give it the answer and AI then learns what, it's, what back data it's got to come to that answer. Now, there's a very big danger so that's and like retrofitting, isn't it? It, it is. It, it is. And it, that might work if you're showing a computer what an apple should look like because it's not going to change. But markets are non-linear dynamic systems, which means that that you might get a 20% drawdown and then the market always goes up by 50% after that on you know 20 occasions over the last 30 years that the system then says, right, every time it goes down by 20%, I'm going to buy. But the next time it happens, that's when it doesn't do that. And because then, it's a complex adaptive system. Exactly. So things change and it may not necessarily know that things have changed and therefore it depends on how intelligent the, the programming is in the first place, which comes down to what you've just said. But where we don't even... The markets are basically human, you know, human interaction, human human beings in an economy, human choices, whether they buy an iPhone or, uh, you know, an Android or whatever it might be, you know, and those all those th- things within business are human actions. Um, and therefore, the market is very much a, a human decision-making um, arena. And so you can, you can use technology up to a point, but ultimately it's still driven by human emotion. And we don't understand human emotion. That's the, that's the thing. You can't get computers to understand it because we don't understand it. We don't understand it ourselves. We're, we're just not there. You know, um, so, and we may, we may possibly never understand it. If you read Taleb's books and he says the way the, the human brain's wired, it's, it's literally so complex. It comes down to what you were saying about the AlphaGo um, you, you know the the number of of uh, what was the quote? The number of it's the, the number of board permutations is greater than the number of atoms in the observable universe. Right. So if you think about that in a in a system which cannot change, which is just a board with with uh, little black and white pebbles being put onto a game board, then think about how complex the whole financial system is. So that gives me hope that, uh, you know, we won't need machines and machines won't outperform everybody and we'll still need human beings. Um, But I would also say there's one thing that is very much worth watching. I did recommend it as a media pick before, um, and that is the the documentary called Magnus. It's Magnus Carlsen, the chess player. And uh, in a similar way to AlphaGo, um, it's just a fantastic man-against-machine, you know, competition. And when Magnus is playing the top-ranked chess player, he goes in on his own with his dad, and the top-ranked chess player, this Indian 
gentleman whose name I've forgotten, I'm sorry, but his, his, the top-ranked chess player has got a series of grandmasters on his side who've got a series of computer systems that are number-crunching. That sounds best, like a fair fight. The best way to beat him. And mm. just to show you how good this guy is as a, as a, as a human being... He played. He got together. I don't want to ruin the documentary, but I have to tell you this to whet your appetite. He played the world's ten of the world's top greatest or top playing uh, lawyers. So I don't know why he chose lawyers, but he, he got ten of them together in a room, played them all together at the same time, mm. blindfolded, <laughs> right? Calculating twenty on, 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 on a unicycle. Oh, well, yeah, he may as well. And then afterwards. He wrote down all the moves that he made for each one of them. Obviously, he beat all of them, and he wrote down all wow. the moves. That wow. that is try and program. I mean, that's just phenomenal. Yeah. So, if you look at the uh, perhaps what we're saying with AI is it's making humans more intelligent. Potentially, I mean, I don't know whether it's pushing mm. humans further to be better. I don't know, but it, it's um, perhaps not. But that is just that just gives me hope that the that we haven't seen the full potential of the human brain as yet, and st- we're still developing, even though AI is. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so on on that note, on uh, that bombshell, on that bombshell. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, thanks for all your questions. Uh, please keep them coming, Tim at Tim F Price, or if you want to leave a message on Anchor, it's Anchor.fm forward slash State of the Markets. And uh, until next time, thank you for listening. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.